Uh, we've come to Mark 15, and uh, we're ready for verse 33. And it says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Then the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So Jesus has been crucified. He was reviled. He was ridiculed. He was blasphemed by those who stood and passed by. And then there was a darkness at midday that covered the whole land of Israel. And perhaps more, probably more, for a period of three hours. Now Henry Morris does relate this darkness was mentioned by an early Greek historian named Thallus. He wrote around 52 A.D. He tried to explain it as a solar eclipse. You may have heard that explanation yourself. However, the Jewish Passover season was during the time of the full moon when no solar eclipse could take place. The sun is shining fully upon the moon. The moon is not in front of the sun. The darkness was altogether unnatural, says Morris, or we might say supernatural darkness. As we think about this darkness, firstly we understand that Jesus was and is the light of the world. In John 8, verse 12, it says, Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I'm the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. And in John 9, 5, he says, For as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. We read in the Sermon on the Mount previously where Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5:14-16, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But of course, his disciples are only the light of the world because he is first the light of the world. There's no light apart from his light. In John chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, we're told, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it or overcome it. In 1 John 1 5, he says, This is the message which you have heard from him and declared, which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's full of light. Secondly, we know that during these three hours of supernatural darkness, the world's light was extinguished or covered while he was being made sin for us. Second Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 21 says, He, God, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then we also see that this darkness was the night season prophesied in Psalm 22. Jesus quotes Psalm 22 here, referencing the entire psalm. Psalm 22 and verse 2 uh, after, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He says, oh my God, I cry in the daytime, but you do not hear. First part of being on the cross. And in the night season, and I'm not silent, he continued to cry out to the Father. 
Thirdly, the Gospels reveal nothing of what took place during those three hours of the darkness of hell itself. From other scripture, we know that Christ hanged on a tree was being made the curse for us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 says, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is from Deuteronomy chapter 21. He redeemed us from the curse of the law. What's the curse of the law? If you don't keep the law of God perfectly, then you're subject to the curse of death. It goes back even further than the law. Deuteronomy 21, 22, and 23, where this is given, it says, If a man has committed a sin deserving of death, and he's put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain overnight on the tree, but you shall surely bury him that day, so that you do not defile the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. For he who is, is hanged is accursed of God. And so we know from God's word that Jesus hanging upon the cross is cursed in our place. The wrath of God poured out upon him. Back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 16 and 19, we, we find this curse of death pronounced in the beginning after the fall of man and woman. In verse 16, it says to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. The very earth we walk upon has had a curse pronounced upon it. Amazingly, it still produces abundantly, but not without toil and sweat and trouble to bring forth. It's back in Genesis 2.17 that God gives Adam this command. He says, Of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, that very day, you shall surely die. And people will say, Well, Adam didn't die. He lived for 930 years. Well, it's dying you shall die. He began to die at that point. Of course, he experienced uh, spiritual death, a separation between him and God that he had never been there before. A separation between him and Eve that had never been there before. But the spiritual death was between him and the Father. So he says, Cursed is the ground for your sake. In verse 18, Both thorns and thistles it will bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field in the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. Scientifically, we are dust. And, you know, if you can prove it, just go dig up somebody that's been expired for a long time. <laughs> what you find is dust. Well, in order for Christ to suffer the full punishment for sin, he had to suffer the infinite agony equivalent to, quote, everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. First, Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.9 is where this is pronounced. And this is... Uh, a judgment upon those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. It says, They shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. This is the punishment that sinners will endure if they refuse to accept the provision for the forgiveness of sin that Jesus has bought with His suffering the same punishment. 
Jesus endured the very same punishment, the wrath of God that is justly determined upon sinners so that those same sinners need never suffer it. If only they will turn to Him and seek forgiveness, which He promises to freely give. Why do we so foolishly resist this offer? In these three hours of darkness, Jesus is having the iniquity of mankind laid upon His shoulders, not by force, but willingly taking it upon Himself. Isaiah 53, verses 4-6 through six is a picture of this. It says, Surely He has borne our griefs, He has carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But He was wounded for our transgressions, He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of, for our peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. In Mark 15, then verses 34 and 35, it says, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Some of those who stood by when they heard that said, Look, he's calling for Elijah. Jesus is not calling for Elijah. He's quoting that first line of Psalm 22. The entire Psalm, Psalm 22, 1 through 31, is prophetic of the crucifixion and the resurrection. You've got to read to the end to see that he's alive again. He quotes this, though, in a Chaldaic dialect. It was a dialect that many of them were maybe not familiar with, so they thought, Eloi, oh, he's Elijah. He's talking to Elijah. So Mark provides us a translation. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And Jesus knows the answer. He's not asking the question because he doesn't know. He knows the answer. He's directing people to find the real reason for this seeming breach between the Father and the Son. David Guzik points out Jesus knew great pain and suffering, both physical and emotional in his life, but never knew separation from his father. Now he knew it. There was a significant sense in which Jesus rightly felt forsaken by God the Father at this moment. And I think that's a key there. He rightly felt forsaken by the Father. think that forsakenness was because of that wrath that was being poured out upon him. This happened in the sense that God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, as we read. That is, in a sense, he was the embodiment of sin. That which we are in our fallen nature, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have the saying, hate the sin, love the sinner. We are to hate the sin, the rebellion against God, while loving the person who is in bondage to sin, that is, the rebel against God, or the one who is part and parcel of sin. Some of you probably remember Pastor Chuck Hedges. He used to refer to it as being shot through with sin. We're shot through with sin. You know, I get the image of a, you know, stop signs in rural areas that are just <laughs> blasted by youngsters out, you know, practicing. I don't want to make it sound worse than it is, but I'm not sure that's possible. The Scriptures paint it in the starkest light or perhaps the darkest darkness. It is enough to merit eternal separation from God. 
God now must separate our sin from ourselves or our sin will separate us from God forever. God's solution was the only solution possible. The radical surgery of the cross of the Son of the Father in which He took sin upon Himself and condemned sin in the flesh. This is the real measure of God's love for us. Romans chapter 1, verses 1-4 through speaks about this condemning of sin. It says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, and that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. On account of sin, He condemned sin in the flesh. In the flesh of Jesus, He condemned sin. The word here, there's, we, we talk about there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. True. This condemn, word condemnation is the same as He condemned sin in the flesh. You know, two different forms of the same word. Fourth verse, that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Jesus not only endured the withdrawal of the Father's fellowship, but also the actual outpouring of the Father's wrath upon him as a substitute for sinful humanity. The transaction that took place upon the cross is unfathomable, it is unsearchable, it is incomprehensible. It is truly a deep mystery. As Paul cries out in another context, Romans 11.33, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. So it's unfathomable, but it does not mean that it cannot be explained. It is. By the words of 2 Corinthians 5.21, He who knew no sin was made sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. But that doesn't give us a full understanding of the fullness of what took place. We simply accept what is said. It is something that can be pondered forever without coming to the end of it. There's a song by Chris Tomlin, and he, he has to give a nod to Charles Wesley here. <laughs> it says, I am forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted. You were condemned. I'm alive and well. Your spirit is within me because you died and rose again. Amazing love. How can it be that you, my king, would die for me? Amazing love. I know it's true. And it's my joy to honor you in all I do. I honor you. The nod to Charles Wesley as he's the one who first wrote this. That you, my, he said that you, my God, should die for me in his uh, song. Horrible as this was, is pouring out of God's wrath upon the Son. It fulfilled God's good and loving plan of redemption. Therefore, Isaiah could say, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise Him. It pleased Yahweh to bruise the Son upon the cross. Isaiah 53.10, It pleased the Lord to bruise Him. He has put Him to grief. When you make His soul an offering for sin, He shall see His seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. There's resurrection in this verse. At the same time, we cannot say that the separation between the Father and the Son at the cross was 
complete or full because as Second uh, Corinthians 5.19 says, let's start in verse 18. Now all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were pleading through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. For he, he made him who knew so, no sin, our key verse, to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, even upon the cross, not imputing their trespasses to them. The Father and Son were acting in concert to carry out the plan of redemption through the cross of Christ. What a glorious mystery of redemption it is. If you've experienced his redemption, then shout it from the housetops. Go tell it on the mountain. Don't withhold the word of reconciliation from anyone. I want to read a good portion of Psalm 107 where the psalmist says, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Verse 1, For His mercy endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the enemy and gathered out of all the lands from the east and from the west, from the north and the south. They wandered in the wilderness in a desolate way. They found no city to dwell in. Hungry and thirsty, their soul fainted in them. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble and He delivered them out of their distresses. And He led them forth by the right way that they might go to a city for a dwelling place. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. This is a continuing refrain here. And the the key to this is they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. We'll see people that were in trouble, uh, we might say through no fault of their own directly, and we'll see people who are in trouble because of what they've done. And in every case, it is they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He delivered them out of their distresses. Verse 9, He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. Those who sat in darkness and in the shadow of death bound in affliction and irons because they rebelled against the words of God. So here they are. They're, they're there for a purpose, for a reason. And they despised the counsel of the Most High. Therefore, He brought them He brought down their heart with labor. They fell down and there was none to help. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble. And He saved them out of their distresses. He brought them out of darkness and the shadow of death and broke their chains in pieces. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. For He has broken the gates of bronze and cut the bars of iron in two. Fools, because of their transgression and because of their iniquities, were afflicted. Their soul abhorred all manner of food, and they drew near to the gates of death. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. He sent His word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. Why do we not cry out to the Lord in our trouble? Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them sacrifice the sacrifices of thanksgiving and declare His works with rejoicing. 
And then he talks about those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters. They see the works of the Lord and His wonders in the deep, for He commands and raises the stormy wind, which lifts up the waves of the sea. They mount up to the heavens, then they go down again to the depths. Their soul melts because of trouble. You've seen films like The Perfect Storm or different ones about Jim, and you're going up and you're coming down. And they're just caught in the midst of a storm. doesn't say that you know, this was God's judgment upon them for anything. They reel to and fro. They stagger like a drunken man and are at their wit's end. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble and He brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that its waves are still. Kind of reminds me of somebody. Then they're glad because they are quiet. So He guides them to their desired haven. Same guy. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for His goodness and for His wonderful works to the children of men. Let them exalt Him also in the assembly of the people and praise Him in the company of the elders. There's a little more to this psalm. He goes on to speak of further blessings of the Lord. The work of the cross is a great mystery. God's wrath for sin poured out fully upon the Son of God as a substitute for you and I. And yet the Father pleased with the Son in the entire ordeal while the Son felt the full forsakenness of sinful humanity and none of the pleasure of the Father as the Son fulfilled His will. There's a poem by Elizabeth Barrett Browning that I ran across. I'm not good at reading poetry, so you have to just take the words and <laughs> deserted. God could separate from His own essence rather and Adam's sins have swept between the righteous son and father. Yea, once Emmanuel's orphaned cry, his universe, universe hath shaken. It went up single, echoless. My God, I am forsaken. It went up from his holy lips amid his lost creation that no believer e'er should use those words of desolation. We read in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first, also for the Greek. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The gospel, the message of the cross, contain power through faith that will save those who cry out to the Lord in their trouble. Galatians 6.14 God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Boasting in nothing that we have done but only in what He has done. We have no other boast. If we have another boast then we have not yet understood the cross. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 7-12, through 12, Paul writes Timothy and says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, His prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to His own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. 
to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I'm not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. In Mark 5.36 it says, uh, Someone ran and filled a sponge full of sour wine, put it on a reed, and offered it to him to drink, saying, uh, Let him alone. Let's see if Elijah will come to take him down. Uh, this is the fulfillment of Psalm 69.21, also a Messianic psalm, which says, They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. Earlier, Jesus would not drink the wine mixed with myrrh, lest it dull his senses. But now he drinks that all the prophecies might be fulfilled. Mark quotes for us only one thing that Jesus said upon the cross. He made seven utterances that have been recorded for us. This instance of the sour wine is very near the death of Jesus. In John 19, we see the same event. Uh, in verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Those words, it is finished. It's also in verse 28, all things were now accomplished. It's the same Greek word. Sometimes it's translated various ways, accomplished, finished. O'Cole says this vinegar was the sour wine not only of the soldier's ration, but of everyday use. This is apparently quite a different occasion, and it is from the official offering of the drugged wine earlier in the chapter of Mark. This doesn't sound that refreshing or appetizing to me, you know, sour wine, but apparently it was something that was used in this way. A sour wine is mentioned in the Old Testament as a refreshing drink or as a stimulant, whereas the first thing they offered Jesus would have been um, dulling his senses. This would have been a stimulant. And number 6.3, speaking of the vow of the Nazarite, says, He shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. He shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice, nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. And then in Ruth chapter 2 and verse 14, Boaz, taking mercy upon Ruth, speaking to her, says to her at mealtime, Come here and eat, eat of the bread and dip your piece of bread in the vinegar. And it doesn't sound that great to me, but, you know, maybe I should try it. Maybe it would be refreshing. <laughs> so she sat beside the reapers. He passed parched grain to her, and she ate and was satisfied and kept some back for Naomi. Well, in Greek and Roman literature as well, it is a common beverage appreciated by laborers and soldiers because it relieved thirst more effectively than water and was inexpensive, according to Lane. Well, Jesus spoke several other times on the cross as well. The first time was in Luke. It's given to us in Luke 23:34, where Jesus says, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. And they divided his garments and cast lots. Those who were crucified, uh, those who crucified him were forgiven of this sin that was not held to their account. This is a sin, only one that will not be forgiven in this life or the next. Or, I'm sorry, there is a sin. I'm trying to read my own notes again. 
There is a sin, only one, that will not be forgiven in this life or the next, and that is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit's work in the heart to convict a person of sin and draw them to the cross of Christ for cleansing from their sin. To blaspheme the Spirit is to reject the work of the Spirit and make oneself unable to come to Christ for forgiveness. In the context of the mention of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit by Jesus, those opposed to him were ascribing his miracles to the work of demons. They were in danger of committing this sin. Obviously, if you ascribe the work of the Holy Spirit to demons, you will not respond to his call to turn to the Lord. Those who do commit this sin have no concern about having done it. There are those who will come and they'll say, oh, I'm worried about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. If you've done it, you're not really, you don't care. <laughs> they are quite happy with their stand. If someone's worried that they may have committed this sin, then they have not done so and simply need to respond to the Spirit of God and draw near to God. Now, secondly, Jesus uh, spoke in Luke 23:43 to the thief upon the cross, and we've talked about this. Jesus said to him, Assuredly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus responds to the simple request of the thief on the cross to remember him when he sets up his kingdom. And Jesus assures us that today he will be with him in paradise. The earthly kingdom is not yet, but the thief does not have to wait for salvation. No one need wait. The door is open. Today is the day. Today is the day of salvation. And Jesus will not turn away anyone who comes to him and receives him as the Lord and Savior. The third thing that Jesus spoke upon the cross is in John 19, verses 26 and 27, as Mary and John were standing at the foot of his cross. It says, When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to his home. The fourth thing is the one we have in Mark as well as in Matthew. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Uh, the fifth and sixth sayings from the cross were the I thirst and it is finished that we have already read from the Gospel of John. And here in Mark we read John, I'm sorry, Mark 15:37. Jesus cried out with a loud voice and breathed his last. Well, what did he cry? Mark doesn't tell us what he cried, but John does, and that's what we read in John 19.30. When he received the star wine, he said, It is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It is finished is one Greek word, to telestai, which means it is accomplished, or in business transactions, it would be rendered paid in full. It can be rendered as one word, finished, accomplished, done, completed, paid. This is what Jesus cried out before he committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. Guzik says, this is the cry of a winner because Jesus paid in full the debt of sin we owed and had finished the eternal purpose of the cross. At some point before he died, before the veil was torn in two, before he cried out, it is finished, an awesome spiritual transaction took place. God the Father set upon Jesus all the guilt and wrath our sin deserved. And Jesus bore it himself perfectly, totally satisfying the wrath of God toward us. It's important that we understand the final, eternal exchange that has taken place. 
Just as Barabbas was released and Jesus was crucified, so you have been released from your sentence of death and Jesus has been killed. The transaction is complete. It is applied to your account when you trust in Jesus for your release. His is the only payment that will be effective. You can't pay your own debt. You can't substitute another form of payment. God doesn't take Visa or MasterCard. He only takes the blood of Jesus in payment. And it's available to anyone who will ask. It doesn't matter what's in your wallet, your bank, or your work's resume. It doesn't matter that you are better than Barabbas, or Charles Manson, or Mother Teresa, or your neighbor. He is the only Savior. On the cross, Jesus became, as it were, an enemy of God who was judged and drank the cup of the Father's fury. He did it so that we would not have to drink that cup. Reader, Adam Clark says, one drop of this cup would bear down thy soul to endless ruin, and these agonies would annihilate the universe. He suffered alone. For the people there was none with him, because his suffering were to make an atonement for the sins of the world. And in the work of redemption, he has no helper. He's the only God, and besides him there is no Savior. Isaiah 45:51. The Lord speaks and says, Tell and bring forth your case. Yes, let them take counsel together. Who has declared this from ancient time? Who has told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a just God and a Savior. There is none besides besides me. The death of Jesus on the cross was and is the ultimate demonstration of God's love towards all mankind. And we read in Romans 5, 8, God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for us to improve ourselves. There wasn't anything in you that caused God to send His Son to die for you. It was what was in Him, His love. That is security because it does not change. His love for you doesn't depend on what you are It depends on who He is. His cross is the power of God unto salvation, though it seems foolish to those who reject it. At the cross, Jesus wiped out our record of sin and rebellion against God, nailing it to the cross. We read in Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 through 15, You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all, trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it, in his cross. The word, this word tetelestai would be used in business transactions on receipts and in the payment of debts. It would be used also to indicate a prisoner's sentence had been served in full. This is the picture we see here in Colossians. A prisoner's charges would be written and nailed to the door of his cell. Jesus' charge was written above the cross, on the cross. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. That was the charge that he ended up being crucified for. He took the charges against us 
which are written because of our breaking of God's law, and he nailed them to the cross. These were the true charges he was making payment for. We are no longer required to pay if we accept his payment for our debt. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus received our wages. They were paid out to him upon the cross. And he leaves us a gift behind, eternal life in him. What a shame if that gift were to remain unclaimed. Jesus' cross is the demonstrable proof of God's love and the extent of his love for mankind. If Jesus had not endured the cross, it might be said that there is a limit to God's love, that there was something God could have done but was unwilling to do in order to demonstrate his love for man. But that cannot be said. There was and is no limit to God's love. The only thing that remains is man's response to God. There's one final saying of Jesus on the cross, Luke 23:46, when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, "Father, into your hands I commit my spirit." And having said this, he breathed his last. And this is just before the tearing of the veil in the temple. In this saying, Jesus quotes another psalm, Psalm 31:5, "Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth." David wrote this psalm. David the psalmist cries out to the Lord for deliverance from his enemies in this psalm. Jesus gives up his spirit. He chooses the moment he would breathe his last. Only after the payment was fully accomplished does he lay down his life. In John chapter 10, verses 15 through 18, Jesus said, As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd, Jew and Gentile. Therefore my Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it again. No one takes it from me. You remember he said he could call twelve legions of angels to deliver him, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This command I've received from my Father. These guys passing by and mocking him and saying, just come down from the cross and we'll believe that you're the Christ. He could have done it. He could have done it in- instantly if he wanted to. Healed his wounds. Stood before them and said, nah, 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 nah. <laughs> but it wouldn't have done any good for us. This transaction then is completed, but it awaits one final step. It must be accepted by the Father. Validated by the one to whom the debt is owed. The sign has been set previously, which will confirm that the payment has been accepted. That is, that the check has been cashed. He must be raised from the dead. As he indicates here in verse 18. In verse 19 of John 2, Jesus says, he answers them and says, Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. This was the accusation that was the false witnesses brought against him, but they couldn't agree. And John tells us he spoke this of the temple of his body. You tear down this body, this temple I'm in, and I'll raise it up in three days. This is the gospel. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 8. Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received and in which you stand, 
by which also you are saved, if you, if you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of all that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that He was seen by Cephas, then by the twelve, after that He was seen by over five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep. After that He was seen by James, then by all the apostles, and then last of all He was seen by me also as one born out of due time. The Gospel message. If there's no resurrection, there's no Gospel. There's no good news. Many people claim a Christianity in which Christ has not been raised from the dead. This is a faux Christianity that is without hope. It offers no hope, zero hope. In 1 Corinthians 15, verses 12-19, through 19, Paul writes, If Christ has preached that He's been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Apparently some of the Sadducees had wormed their way into the fellowship in Corinth. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that He raised up Christ, whom He did not raise up, if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then also those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable, the most to be pitied. The resurrection is the proof of the truth of the gospel of grace. In the resurrection, we are assured that the sacrifice of Jesus for sinners has been fully accepted. The debt has been paid. The same scriptures that prophesy His death for sin, prophesy His being raised from the dead and proclaiming the Father's truth in the assembly. In Romans chapter 1, verses 1-4, through 4, now Paul writes again, a bondservant, Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David, according to the flesh, and declared to be the son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. This is the proof. No other proof is sufficient. And no other proof is required. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 3, speaking of Jesus appearing to His apostles, it says, He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. 